Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore and I hope you check it out. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. The Leaders If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. General Dwight D. Eisenhower General Irvin Rommel and General Dwight D. Eisenhower were the leaders of the two opposing forces, with one great glaring difference— Rommel was the nominal leader of German forces. Eisenhower was the supreme commander of all the Allied forces. Rommel reported to an elderly general who reported to Hitler. He and his fellow generals argued over strategy and placement of forces, especially armor. He couldn't move troops without permission. Eisenhower was akin to the chief executive officer of a major corporation becoming the role model for the future leaders of corporate America in the 1950s. He reported to a board of directors, consisting of Roosevelt and Churchill. But tactics and organization were his responsibility. He called the shots, and he took the responsibility. He knew he could be fired at any time, and also knew he could quit at any time. Eisenhower got the job of supreme commander by default, In November 1943, Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt met in Tehran, Iran. Stalin wanted the Second Front, the invasion of Europe, to relieve the German pressure on his country. Churchill assured him the assault would come in the spring of 1944, and had even given it a codename, Overlord. Stalin asked who the leader of the forces would be. Nobody had an answer. Stalin did not believe the two leaders were serious about the invasion. Without a leader, how could they be serious with less than six months until the attack date? Roosevelt said he would get back to Stalin with an answer in three to five days. Roosevelt didn't make his deadline. He wanted to name Chief of Staff George Marshall, later the force behind the Marshall Plan that revitalized the European economies, especially Germany's, after the war. Eisenhower, in 1943, in command of American forces in North Africa and Italy, would return to the U.S. and take Marshall's job in Roosevelt's plan. It would also make Eisenhower commander over General Charles MacArthur, Eisenhower's old boss in the Pacific, something MacArthur would never go for. Roosevelt asked Marshall for his preference, hoping the man would name himself. Marshall didn't give the expected answer. He would serve anywhere the president requested, but he wouldn't name himself or anybody else. It was Roosevelt's decision, and he named Eisenhower. Eisenhower was born in Denison, Texas in 1890, where his father and mother had relocated after the family store went under in Kansas. His father got back on his feet working for the railroad as a mechanic, and the family moved back to Abilene, Kansas in 1892. Dwight was the third of seven brothers, all nicknamed Ike, but with differences like Big Ike or Little Ike. 
The Eisenhowers were Mennonites, as were many German immigrant families, and they were anti-war, with many Mennonites being conscientious objectors in World Wars I and II. Eisenhower wanted to go to college, but couldn't afford it, instead going to work for two years after high school. A friend applied to the Naval Academy and suggested Dwight do the same. He was too old for the Naval Academy, but was accepted into West Point in 1911, graduating in 1915. Out of a total class of 164, 59 became generals. Eisenhower wanted to see action in World War I, but spent the war training troops and running large bases. The organizational skills he learned would be much more important than combat experience, although it grated on him that he never served in France, at least not until 1944. His executive skills did not go unnoticed, and Eisenhower served on the staffs of many generals, including Pershing, MacArthur, and Marshall. Eisenhower had the people skills to work with diverse personalities, which would help with Churchill and Montgomery. He worked well with MacArthur until they clashed in the 1930s over the structure and training of the Philippine Army. They never reconciled. With the start of World War II, Eisenhower moved to Washington to be on the general staff and then on to run the invasions of North Africa and Italy. He was named Supreme Allied Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in December 1943. His first combat came with his allies. He fought with his own navy over the number of landing craft. He ordered the RAF to report to him, and he argued with Churchill over the bombing of French targets. Churchill thought French civilian casualties would turn the population against the Allies. Eisenhower found a rare ally in Charles de Gaulle on this issue, with de Gaulle saying any casualties were worth it to get rid of the Germans. Eisenhower won all his arguments because he believed he was right, backing up his beliefs with facts and thorough research. His ego was probably as large as anyone's, if not greater, but he wore his opponents down with facts, numbers, strategy, and a never-ending positive attitude. He had a counter-argument for every argument. Eisenhower had another quality common to the perfect corporate manager. He appeared to treat everyone the same. Of course, he was spending long hours giving presentations and fielding questions from his bosses, but he spent long hours as well visiting his troops, making himself seen and heard to the men who would step out of the plains and land on the beaches. He would take shots on the firing range, yell out for men from Kansas, ask their names and their hometowns. The men loved him and worried about him. The night of the drop, he visited the 101st Airborne staging area with one worried paratrooper telling Eisenhower, Now, quit worrying, General. We'll take care of this thing for you. Finally, Eisenhower believed absolutely in his decisions. Because of his strength and decision-making, he was not afraid to threaten to quit if he didn't get his way. Eisenhower did not make threats. He meant it. When faced with blind opposition, he pulled out his trump card. I quit. Obviously, he never did but he was ready to. Eisenhower did not shrink his duty or his responsibilities. A day before the invasion, Eisenhower hand-wrote this statement on a piece of unlined stationery. Our landings on the Cherbourg Havre have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based on the best information available. The troops, the air, and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone.
The note is in the National Archives. Rommel did not threaten to quit, and he left no notes. He argued for men and supplies and over strategy. But because he was not a supreme commander, he could not order up what was needed. He was a general among many generals with no veto power. He was a hard worker going up and down the French coast, building, cajoling, bullying, while pleading for men, materials, and weapons. Rommel was a year younger than Eisenhower and had seen a lot of combat in World War I. He was awarded the Pour les Marites, the Blue Max, Germany's highest medal, for action in the Battle of Longarone on the Italian front, where Rommel's command captured over 9,000 Italians and 81 artillery pieces offset by his loss of only six men killed. In his personal life, he fathered an illegitimate daughter as a young man and provided financial support throughout the girl's life, then married Lucie, whose birthday would have a significant impact on the invasion. They had one son, Manfred. Manfred was mayor of Stuttgart from 1974 through 1996. Between the wars, Rommel preferred to remain a line officer, turning down a chance to be on general staff. Compare this to Eisenhower, who wanted combat but became a master of organization behind the lines and with the general staff. Rommel caught Hitler's eye when his World War I diary was rewritten as a military textbook. Rommel worked his way up to commander of Hitler's personal protection battalion. With the outbreak of the war, Rommel requested to see action, and Hitler asked where he wanted to serve. Rommel picked tanks and was named commander of the 7th Panzer Division. They would become known as the Ghost Division because they often outran their communications with their lightning attacks. The 7th supported the right flank in the invasion of France and Belgium and were the first panzers to make the English Channel, although not before the majority of the British Army escaped at Dunkirk. For his success, Rommel was named head of the Africa Corps in 1941 to back up Italian forces in Libya, who were being trounced by the British operating out of Egypt. Rommel was not impressed with his allies, declaring that the Italian tanks only had one gear, reverse, Rommel would battle the British and then the Americans for two years. He inflicted the first American defeat at the Battle of Kasserine Pass, resulting in 1,000 American deaths and 6,500 casualties. Eisenhower sacked the American commander, replacing him with George S. Patton. Rommel may have won the battle, but the Americans were learning. With his luck and supplies running out, Rommel flew to Germany in March 1943 to ask for help. Hitler refused and ordered Rommel to remain in Germany. His successor surrendered in May. 275,000 exhausted German troops became prisoners of war. In November 1943, Hitler ordered Rommel and Army Group B from Greece to Normandy to build the Atlantic Wall. He was doomed. He did not control the Luftwaffe, the Navy, even many of his own panzers. He was short of materials of all kinds, and he reported to von Rundstedt, not Hitler. He argued with von Rundstedt, as von Rundstedt feared the Allies' Navy guns and wanted to battle the armies inland after they had landed. Rommel feared the Allies' air forces and wanted to throw the invaders back into the sea. Even though the men disagreed on strategy, they would remain friends. Ultimately, Rommel would be undone by Hitler's lifestyle his habit of going to bed late and sleeping until noon, 
Hitler's timing would have a tremendous impact on Germany's response to the invasion. We shall read more of Rommel regarding D-Day, but his end should be discussed here. Rommel was right to fear air power. A British Spitfire attacked his staff car on July 17, 1944. His driver was hit in the right arm, losing control of the car, which smashed into a tree. Rommel suffered a skull fracture. Although he survived the car crash, he would not survive Hitler's wrath. Rommel had been recruited as early as February 1944 into the plot to overthrow Hitler. Rommel opposed assassination, wanting Hitler to stand trial for his crimes. After the July 20th attempt on Hitler's life, interrogation of many participants led to Rommel. A court-martial ordered Rommel to stand trial in a kangaroo court. Hitler knew this would be bad for the country and the army's morale. He ordered two generals to Rommel's home with two choices, face the court or commit suicide. If he went to court, his staff and family would be persecuted. His family would receive no pension. If he committed suicide, his staff and family would be safe and he would receive a state funeral. He told his wife and son of his decision to commit suicide and was driven out to the countryside where he bit into a cyanide capsule. He was buried with state honors, his casket covered with swastika flags. No military honors were displayed. Eisenhower would go on to become the 34th president of the United States. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.